leaders. What keeps you up at night? Welcome to The Sweet Spot, the podcast series that expands the traditional term of what a boss is to tackle some of the most important issues in business. From business as usual and growing your market to everyday leadership issues or handling one in 100 year events, we aim to provide ongoing inspiration and education for CEOs, founders, management, shareholders and leaders of every stripe. The sweet spot is the future of work and business. Hi, I'm Stephanie Jones. And I'm Gemma Crook. And in today's episode, we'll be speaking with Steve Nicholson, Director of Corporate Affairs and Sustainability for Cottonsoft, Sorbent and Solaris Paper in New Zealand and Australia. Steve has faced many challenges throughout his career, most recently the demand from consumers and NGOs for evidence of more sustainable practices. The task of greater corporate responsibility and the place of certification and CSR among affiliate businesses in developed nations are issues with which Steve has been intimately involved over several years, and he has many tales of battle and triumph to share. Hi Steve, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on The Sweet Spot today. We know you well, and many of us in our team have worked with you for many years. Uh, but for our listeners, can you just give us a brief intro into who you are and what you do? Yeah, thanks, Gemma. Well, um, what I currently do is uh, I am director of uh, the three businesses that are affiliated to Asia Pulp and Paper, being Cottonsoft in New Zealand, Sorbent, um, and Solaris in Australia. And I also um, uh, double up on that role as spokesperson for sustainability matters uh, across all the uh, environmental issues for the, the business units. And there's a, also a related company called Paperface, which is uh, Paperforce rather, which is involved in cultured paper and packaging board. Steve, we started working with you when you were already a senior leader, but how did you start out in your professional career? Can you give us an overview of, of how it all happened? <laughs> <laughs> so long ago, well, Steph, um, it's nearly six decades ago, but I, I started my uh, business career um, in, in the 60s in Australia and, and I joined a wine and spirit company, beverage alcohol business. Um, tertiary education wasn't something that um, was uh, readily available in those days. It was for the privileged and for the, the highly uh, uh, skilled. Um, I elected to go to the uh, University of Actual Experience, as I like to characterise it. I spent 40 years in the beverage alcohol business in Australia, uh, working across Australia, New Zealand, the Pacific, um, uh, Hong Kong, the UK, New York and um, Indochina and uh, Bangkok. Um, and then I decided that I'd try and retire in New Zealand um, in 2000. Uh, that was short-lived. I didn't quite... Um, um, I didn't quite work in uh, in in the retirement space, uh, so I um, I elected to get into the aged care business. I uh, purchased two uh, aged care businesses in the uh, North Island of New Zealand uh, that were run under management, and I um, I owned those until two thousand and nine, and somewhere in between two thousand and two thousand and nine, I um, I became involved with uh, APP. I was asked to uh, to come on board as a consultant for their Australian business. They were looking for someone who uh, wanted to uh, develop a template, a business uh, footprint in Australia and New Zealand. They, they, them being an Asian company, they, they didn't quite know where to start. And I've been there ever since. You've had a, quite a varied career, Steve, um, by the sounds of it. 
Um, what are some of the highlights and lowlights you've experienced throughout that time? Hard, hard to cherry pick, but um, two of my highlights were in fact in New Zealand. Uh, the, the first one was when I managed the Seagram business uh, and we had a, a distillery in New Zealand in Dunedin called Wilson's and we developed a, a New Zealand malt whiskey, which we eventually uh, exported to the UK and sold through odd bins in the UK. I, even, I think I've got a, a letter from the, <laughs> the then Prime Minister uh, thanking us for that. Uh, but that was that was more of a, a personal uh, high, highlight. And the second one was the acquisition of Cottonsoft, which um, was a, um, uh, a small business operating in, uh, again, in Dunedin, uh, which is now, I think, the market leader in New Zealand in tissue products. And the big high for me was um, uh, leading the, um, the divestment of the Seagram operations in Australia-Pacific and selling that to the Fosters Corporation in uh, 1999. Um, lows, there are many. Uh, most of them, most of the lows are more related to the sustainability space and um, the various uh, interactions I've had over the years with uh, NGOs, WWF and Greenpeace. Um, and they certainly have been low points, but we can get into that, drill down in that in a little while. One of the really interesting things that's happened, I think, even since we first met you, Steve, and started working with you in Asia Pulp and Paper and Cottonsoft and Solaris, is the importance of, from a PR and, and reputation crisis point of view, the importance of Google. Um, you know, even even going back to sort of 15 years ago or so, yes. when I started in the PR world, it, Google wasn't a problem. And now, immediately, if a company or an individual hits a crisis, you're looking at that first page of Google results just just purely negative and it's just you know this nightmare scenario for a lot of businesses and, and and people how did you you know in your sustainability journey and those those lowlights you mentioned how did you manage to take a company from having a, a first page and onwards of negative results on google to positive what goes into that shift the, the short answer is we, we we needed a lot of help um, and that's where uh, our relationship started with alexander comms way back when uh, because this was uncharted territory for us. Digital and social media was something that we, we, we had uh, very little experience with. And, and some of our global partners uh, put forward some, some digital solutions, but we relied on our new people in the day to, to be our radar screen, if you like, for when the negative um, information started to flow and how we dealt with it. I guess um, at the end of all this, looking back now, when we were getting such bad, almost toxic um, uh, rhetoric coming out over social media, was dealing it with facts. We, we don't have uh, we don't have the luxury like our NGO friends of of using emotional rhetoric. Um, we can we can only deal in facts, and I think that. The way we handled it electronically or digitally, whichever way you want to uh, characterise it, was was, th was to confront all the allegations that we were getting in these toxic uh, posts with facts, 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 facts. If they start, if they stated uh, a metric, if they stated a certain metric in terms of um, uh, um, looking at um, our expansion of um, plantations and what have you, we gave them back the factual information that we got from our Lydia um, uh, landscaping measurements. The crisis in New Zealand was the 
uh, ramen uh, wood uh, protected wood species. Um, that was that was the genesis of all the aggravation from from Greenpeace. In Australia, it was totally different. Uh, it was uh, it was many things. Um, you know, the trapping of a Sumatran tiger uh, by the villagers um, that all of a sudden became our fault because it was in one of our concessions. So it all depends which one you want to to uh, to pick out as being. Um, most uh, demonstrable of, uh, you know, how these things start. I mean, the New Zealand thing, um, I think we covered by having to, at that point, um, and new people, uh, Alexander Combs, were engaged with us at that, at that stage, and you were handling, um, you know, you were protecting our, our, our face to the market and to, to the community. But we handled that by, again, facts. You know, we went to a laboratory and we presented our laboratory evidence to Greenpeace at the time who, who uh, did their utter best at that stage to pull it apart. And, and you know, you, you hear all the uh, politicians at the moment, we listen to the science, we listen to the science, but they weren't doing too good at it, that, that particular point. And I remember at one stage... You know, we had one of the one of the an independent laboratory, probably the best in New Zealand, actually testing. And it sort of reminds me now of the COVID crisis when we talk about the genome testing to figure out where things have come from. We actually had to do a very similar thing with toilet paper, of all things, to say that every every fibre in this toilet paper is legitimate. It's come from, you know, a, approved legal plantations and and not from some of the you know illegal sources that the NGOs had had suggested. Um, yeah, so that was that was uh, you know really fundamental, and that and that I think, from my recollection, that was a big part of the shift. Once we could get that out there through the media. Well, fortunately, we had we had DNA um, uh, on on our fibre sources. Um, you know, given the earlier attacks um, in the early two thousands that we were getting, we, we got a lot more smarter in terms of our technology and and the manner in which we. We had tracing of uh, back to back to source, so we had um, we had full DNA on on this particular uh, species, and it's it's like the sardine that gets caught, or the um, the dolphin that gets caught in the tuna net. I guess is the uh, parallel here. This was uh, a species of wood that uh, is protected in um, in uh, uh, the subtropical uh, forests. And, and it was only a small amount of fibre that had managed to get past our um, quarantine intake that we had actually identified in our own process and quarantined. But yet it was uh, amplified by the NGOs as being part of our sourcing that we were, we were um, cutting down this particular species to put into our fibre sources. But again, facts came to the fore. Facts and the fact that we had our full DNA and in the end, we, we, we did uh, enlist uh, local uh, laboratories and what have you. And, and of course, uh, you guys at uh, Alexander were handling the comms for us at that point. So we were able to, uh, to put a very positive uh, uh, finish to this. And having, yeah, having such a robust supply chain is so important in this day and age. Um, I think, you know, you've, you've got the technology with your products now that you, you can look at a barcode and basically trace back exactly where that product has come from in terms of which plantation it's actually originated from. So it's pretty sophisticated it's now. It's very sophisticated now. Um, I just wanted to go back to the NGOs um, and, you know, a lot of companies may have experienced this um, uh, throughout 
throughout history, but when you have them on your doorstep, throwing accusations right on your doorstep, protesting, how do you handle that? I mean, I imagine a lot of CEOs, um, boards would just want to curl up under a rock and just hope that it all goes away. But how do you how do you front up? How do you handle that? Well, scene? a great deal of difficulty is the short <laughs> answer because, you know, in Australia, the experience was that we had university students um, dressing up in waffle-fitting monkey outfits, trying to look like orangutans, apparently, attacking cinemas that we were running. Um, and, of course, you had all this colourful rhetoric that was going on, very emotional. Uh, everything that was... Um, associated with our company had a photo of an orangutan or a Sumatran tiger. Um, you know, these are very emotive images. And, and when you have these people in your face, it was very difficult. I can remember an occasion going back to New Zealand where we had the, um, the head of the New Zealand uh, Food and Grocery Council, Catherine Rich, coming on national television um, and debating issues with Greenpeace. And I think that we were very positive in, well, the outcome was positive for us. But the only way you can really handle these people in your face when they are throwing such emotional rhetoric at you all the time is stay with the facts. Keep feeding back the facts. If they put a an allegation in, then you, you pull the allegation apart with facts. It's the only way you can deal with it because we're the suits the perception in the in the public domain is we are the suits. We, we're always characterised as the evil uh, actor on the stage and they're the people saving the planet. And they're the roles that they play. So we can't change roles. You can't change roles on who we are. So you have to stick very, very closely to your, uh, to, to your guns in terms of feeding it, uh, any allegation with facts, facts, facts. We were seeing, Gemma and I were just talking before we started about this sort of new era of, of energy, I suppose, with some of the NGOs. The Green Party did very well in um, the election on Saturday in New Zealand, the general election. So there's, there's sort of the sense of, and the climate crisis remains as urgent as ever. So there's a sense, I, I think, of kind of renewed sort of force behind them. And I wondered, you know, it, it, it's, it's something, you know, NGOs, NGOs have a lot to contribute um, at, at times and it's something you want to find ways to work productively with them so how do you now engage with them as interest groups well uh, the relationships have shifted considerably i mean uh, you know the scenarios that have been uh, previously painted by me in terms of new zealand in the end i i, I actually uh, met with uh, the key greenpeace people only up until about two years ago so our dialogue is a lot a lot straighter these days and a lot more um, uh, coherent um the unfortunate thing is one must always remember that NGOs are campaign organisations. They live by campaigns. And, and regardless of, uh, of what we do in terms of um, our own efforts uh, and initiatives for uh, protecting the environment and, and, and adhering to very clean sustainability uh, supply chain uh, practices, um, they will always find something to attack you on um, because they need they need to have that as campaign material. I mean, we, I think we're going to enter that phase again um, with, with Greenpeace, who have had relatively good relationships with over these past four years. Um, but, you know, something happens. Uh, I don't know whether it's in the NGO hierarchy that they, they all, all of a sudden just... Um, determined that they they need to attack you again. 
whether it's a cyclical thing, I don't know, but um, uh, it, it, it will always go on. We understand their role. Um, that you know that they see themselves as protectors of the planet, and that's good. We understand the whole ethos of it, uh, but there's always middle ground. Um, what more can we say in our business that we only produce virgin fibre from plantation, um, from plantation fibre? That we do not cut down trees, we do not destroy peatlands. We continue to to have to repeat that, and that's that. I can't see that changing. Um, and now we, we have this, this heavy cloud over us of climate change effects. And I think in New Zealand with the Green Party, I saw the, uh, the, the gains in the uh, election on the, on the weekend. I think that's going to be something that uh, we're going to have to be vigilant on because everyone keeps joining the dots of climate change and, you know, um, sustainability practices. And that's not quite fair. And sort of just moving away from the NGOs and just the general yeah. landscape Please. of issues and crisis, um, you know, when dealing with an issue or crisis and, you know, have decisions to make on the fly, do you think with your head or think with your gut or is it a, a uh, bit of both or uh, does it depend a, on the situation It's a cocktail. Gemma, it's a cocktail of experience and common sense and 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 staying calm um you you know you just can't be reactive you've you've got to have the right risk mitigation plans fomented somewhere in your in in your head to deal with it The, the 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 difficulty is that they are they're volatile they're they're always shifting the targets um, uh, always shifting the goal, the goalposts, and it's very, very hard. But again, let me just you know go back to fact. It's got to be everything you do has to be fact based. I mean, in our situation, we're lucky because we we have now uh, reached a stage in terms of our technology and and our abilities um, where we can we can uh, we can counter most accusations. The ones we can't deal with is the in-your-face, on-the-spot um, emotional rhetoric that they'll throw up one day. Some of it you just have to learn to let it slide. Otherwise, you'll spend every day, every living day, um, trying to analyse and, and address um, their allegations. Do you ever take it personally? Or are you able Never. to sort of take a step back? Never. No. That's, one of the, that's one of the sweet spots of being in business for so long. Um, to, to me, it's just do rigueur for the day. Um, uh, some of them have gone close to putting a, a thorn in my side. <laughs> some of them, uh, some of the more out there um, uh, allegations. But no, you, n- you never take it personally. And and I I, I think a, evidence of this was the, the the moment that I flew over to Christchurch to meet up with a guy called Nathan Argent, who was the uh, perpetrator of the the very vicious attacks on us in New Zealand. And we sat down and had a cup of green tea. I don't drink green tea, but he did. Um, uh, together in Christchurch and, 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 and said, well, that was then. This is now. Where do we go from here? But, you know, and that was a very a very uh, nice feeling to have. But, again, the goalposts change. He left. The campaign machinery came back on board. And here we go again. So back in the saddle. One of the things we're trying to do with this podcast is really encourage leaders and particularly I think newer leaders in business to 
examine their businesses, look ahead, think, identify where the landmines are and see where the business is vulnerable and be prepared. Yep. Were you ever thinking back two or three <laughs> or four decades to when no. you were a, a, no. a younger leader? No. Um, was it something you thought about ever being prepared for a crisis or no, what could before no. you? And, or? You know, I worked in Asia for eight years. I worked in some pretty exotic markets. Um, I, nothing ever in that first 40 years of my experience um, uh, led me to think about the things that would happen. I mean, in 2005, we had the Wake Up Woolworths campaign where um, we had just won the tender for the whole of the Woolworths tissue um, uh, segment, huge business. Um, and and we had the uh, very militant union, um, the CFMEU, join, um, join with Greenpeace to create the Wake Up Woolworths campaign. That cost us our entire Australian business. You know, nothing would prepare you for how you manage with that, and we had to manage it. We had to we had to oversticker 2.5 million products across 800 Woolworths stores in in a six month period, and then we we lost the business. We virtually lost our entire Australian holdings. Nothing ever uh, prepares you for that sort of event. But w- what you have to do is is to have good risk mitigation uh, processes in your head that you can then articulate and share with your resources. We were very unfortunate that at the time of the Wake Up Woolworths campaign, that um, we were a team of two people. There were only two people behind the business in Australia, and we were up against some very, very big um, industrial competitors um, and uh, a very powerful and very, very militant union. Nothing prepares you for that. But you've just got to stand your ground and just, again... Deal with the facts. Don't deal with the emotion. And I guess what what advice, I mean, we've probably already touched on this a bit actually, but what advice do you give for boards and executives when handling a crisis or issue? Is there anything they can do to prepare, particularly when faced with, you know, a hundred year event like we're facing now with this global pandemic? Is um, there, how do you is run there any how do you, specifics? How do you, you run know? you know hypothetical scenarios that, that have a <laughs> pandemic in it? It's hard. You, all the workshops are never going to prepare you for that. But what will prepare you is having good people. You know, you've got to look at your human capital. You've got to look at the talent you have around you. You know, I mean, I've been in business 57 years and I, the, the, the most thing I do any given day is listen. Always listen because there's someone there with a spark of an idea, with an innovation that, that can be adapted. So the best advice I can give anyone in, in, in corporate life at the moment is, you know, build human capital, build strong, talented teams. And the, and the hard part in today's environment is, is how to keep those that talent because they're always ascending. They're always going to the next best job. But anyhow, um, nothing can prepare you for a pandemic, unfortunately. Solaris Paper, Cottonsoft and APP, we've touched on. They've, you know, you under your leadership, huge inroads in creating a sustainable supply chain. We've, we've um, alluded to that as well. A lot of companies really struggle with that, and we see, unfortunately, these are cases that often hit the media where there are issues in the supply chain, particularly when there's, you know, import-export channels and, you know, God forbid someone gets sick. Things like that happen. You see contamination. You see problems. What advice do you have for companies wanting to really tighten that up, um, given how, how transparent it is now? 
Don't know the short answer for that one. Um, uh, again, just be uh, uh, critically aware of, of all aspects in the supply chain. Um, you know, there's so much regulation these days uh, that are really demanding companies have very transparent supply chains. In Australia, we have the Illegal uh, Logging Prohibition Act. We now have the Modern Day Slavery Act, which is enacted in Australia and will be enacted in New Zealand. And all these regulations, um, there's regulations coming in for recyclables, um, you know, um, single-use plastics. So what's happening at the moment is that you've got all this uh, uh, um, governmental sort of regulations coming into play. You really do have to have all your homework done in terms of where your products fit within the spectrum of, of the various things. I mean, you know, companies like us, we have to report, we have to issue an annual report on um, uh, Modern Day Slavery Act and threats of such um, the government will soon have le legislation, I know it's going to happen in New Zealand too, uh, for um, recyclables and plastics, single-use plastics. So, you know, m most companies are going to have to have very, very tight regimes in place and mechanisms in place. Are we doing enough in Australia and New Zealand because there have been a lot of issues about New Zealand exporting um, so-called recyclable products, products that the consumers think they're recycling are actually being, being pushed offshore? Um, China in the last 12 months has refused to take a lot of what they had been accepting. Are there, are there gaps, do you think? Because it's not just the responsibility of companies. Companies can be doing the right thing in terms of producing recyclable products, but if the um, <clears throat> if the machinery and the plants and the equipment yeah. isn't here to deal with it. Many gaps. What, what's, what's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gaps. So how do we start dealing with you that? Know, Is that you consumer know, the, pressure on government? You know, the role of curbside collection versus industrial collection versus... Uh, industrial uh, technology in terms of the products that they're using for wrapping and whatever. I mean, in New Zealand, um, our, our business, Cottonsoft, has been able to uh, replace one of its products with a paper-based packaging rather than plastic. But yet we still, we still haven't addressed uh, plastic bailing. You know, when it goes into the stores, it goes on a pallet and it gets wrapped in plastic. They're still working on that. And, of course, there's the, uh, you know, this whole circular economy um, the cost to business, you know, and, and where where is the cost going to be shared in terms of the community across the manufacturing, across the government? They, look, this this whole space is is going through um, enormous amount of scrutiny at the moment, and there's going to be a lot of uh, innovation come on board, and that's going to create new business opportunities. But it's all headed in the right direction. It's just got to come together. Um, because governments um, and Australia and New Zealand governments are no different. Um, they're racing ahead, trying to get ahead of the game and try and get the legis legislation in place before there is the mechanism in industry to meet that re that uh, legislation. So it's uh, it's uh, it's a race at the moment. And moving forward to sort of the future of sustainability, what are your hopes um, for your industry? Are there, is it a journey of continuous improvement? or? Yep, it is a journey of continuous improvement. Um, um, and, and I think that we in our company, APP, have reached a, a plateau for the moment in terms of having to move away from a defence posture into um, a, a material or information development uh, position where we now... Um, have so many reports on sustainability and and uh, social responsibilities and and those two 
areas are linked, as you well know. Um, so it's, it's continuous um, refinement of those processes and getting better in terms of um, transparency um, and, and, and trying to get uh, a little bit more proactive in terms of what, what the communities want to hear. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Steve. Um, if our listeners want to connect with you or follow the journey of your businesses, can, is there anywhere they can be directed to? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm contactable on LinkedIn. They can contact me through LinkedIn or um, uh, they can con- best they contact me on my private email, snickelson47 at bigpond.com. Well, thanks for your time, Steve. Pleasure. Thank you, Steve. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Please like, review or share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you'd like to follow us, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn under Alexander PR or follow the links in the show notes below. Until next time, thank you for listening.